I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. I truly hope you are safe and sound. I'm Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a set of virtual discussions on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm truly pleased and honored to welcome Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland, Ambassador Victoria Newland, to the program. Undersecretary of State Newland has had a very long and distinguished career in the Foreign Service, 33 years, if I'm not mistaken, and counting, holding numerous positions in both Republican and Democratic administrations, very important in my view, including Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, State Department Spokesperson, U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Special Envoy and Chief Negotiator on the Treaty for Conventional Arms Control in Europe, and Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Cheney, in addition to serving overseas, if I'm not, not mistaken, again, um, in Russia, China, and I'd like to hear more about this, Mongolia. Uh, welcome to Carnegie Connects, Ambassador Newland. If I may, I will, I, I may, whether you like it or not, refer to you as Toria throughout, if that's okay. Perfect. We've been friends a long, long time. Thank you, Aaron. It's great to be with you. Thank you. You know, we meet almost a week before the end of the first year of Russia's bu brutal invasion of, uh, of Ukraine and war against Ukraine. Perhaps before we look ahead, Tori, I thought I might ask you to reflect back for a moment. You focused on Russia, European affairs throughout your entire career. Can you give us a sense of how you reacted personally to Russia's invasion and how you processed it as someone intimately familiar with European history, the Cold War, and the post-Cold War period. I remind of, of William Faulkner's quote from Requiem for a Nun, uh, in which he wrote, the past is never dead, it's never even past. So what part of that past resonated uh, for you back uh, last February? Well, thanks, Aaron. Just to remind that the U.S. government first picked up intelligence that Putin might uh, do a major new attack on Ukraine uh, back in uh, November of 2021. And that's when we started declassifying intelligence and sharing it with allies and partners, warning the Ukrainians, beginning to prepare. Uh, and then the invasion came in February. So we had a lot of time. I personally had a lot of time to contemplate this. I have to say that at the beginning, I, I really hoped that the intelligence was wrong. And then, of course, throughout December and January, we began to see it play out accurately as Putin moved, you know, 100 battalion tactical groups uh, towards Ukraine's borders. Uh, and then throughout January, where we were trying to talk to the Russians about what their real concerns were and whether we couldn't through diplomacy, and we obviously we were talking to the Ukrainians too, uh, stave off this awful thing. Uh, so there was a lot of time to sort of think about it and try to do what diplomats do, which is try to ensure peace prevails. And so when they finally moved, uh, it was really um, 
really, really sad, I have to say, uh, first and foremost for Ukraine, but also because we knew that this would be a horrible miscalculation by Putin, that it would throw uh, all of us and the whole world into a real test of wills uh, about whether we were going to stand up for peace, security, sovereignty, territorial integrity, and that even for Russia, it was going to be a tragedy because he was going to drive his nation into this abyss instead of focusing on the needs of Russians. Yeah, you know, again, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll quote somebody else because I think it's important here. I want to uh, to see if I can tease this out of you. Uh, I'll quote Mark Twain, who who argued that history doesn't repeat. He says it it rhymes. History rhymes. I wonder. I'm not sure entirely what he meant by that. But the rhythmic patterns of the past, what what did this conjure up in your mind? You had 2014, of course, you were in the Obama administration, but even against the backdrop of of, uh, the, of modern history, what, what did Russia's invasion of Ukraine, were there any historical parallels that you might've might, might have resonated with you? There were plenty of historical parallels, um, you know, going back, centuries of Im- imperially minded individuals uh, deciding that their definition of what their country was owed um, or what would bring glory trumped any uh, sense of both what they were capable of, what would be tolerated internationally, and what was right and what was humane. I don't have to give all those examples. But of course, you know, so many of us who are serving now were serving in the Obama administration, myself included, uh, when Putin made the moves in in 14 and 15. So we knew what he was capable of, but to do it on this scale and with the clear intention of controlling all of Ukraine, which he obviously wasn't able to do. um, But that, you know, and the, the sheer mass that they brought in that initial phase which the Ukrainians so bravely and courageously were able to push back and to defend Kyiv and to ensure that not only was Kyiv safe, but the government was safe. And for Zelensky to stay and not run and be that symbol for his people that we're going we're gonna to stay and fight. Um, I don't think Putin expected any of that, let alone um, the reaction of all of the rest of us to support Ukraine. So, you know, we all have the stories in our heads of leaders who massively miscalculate and it looks good for them for about 10 minutes and then it doesn't look so good for them and they pay a long, long term price. Right. One more question uh, on his on the history side. Do you think had uh, the response in 2014 been different to Putin's annexation of Crimea? It would have mattered at all? You know, I think uh, in 2014, the way it went, particularly with Putin denying that he was involved with um, the kind of gray zone invasion that we hadn't seen before. Uh, Perhaps we were slower to move than we might have been, but I think what was most important was the period between the end of 2016 and, um, you know, 21, when almost nothing was done 
to try to continue to pressure him out of the rest of Ukraine that he had to try to address some of the longer term security needs of the Ukrainians. And so, you know, it was almost Rip Van Winkle-ish for us coming back into government and finding this thing frozen and Putin just as intransigent as he had been in 2014. Yeah. OK, so let's move move ahead. Next week is the one year anniversary of the Russian invasion. There are bound to be numerous assessments of the administration's response. I mean, full disclosure here, uh, I, I would say, uh, knowing how difficult it is to get anything done in government, particularly in response to a crisis, that I would say to you that um, the alliance management here and the response to the Russian invasion was probably the most adept uh, since uh, Bush 41 and James Baker responded to Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. Uh, mar- uh, marshaling the military force required and the diplomacy afterward. Um, I'm also mindful of the president's notion when he says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. So before we get to the specifics of the policy, tell us where we are uh, a year after Putin's invasion of Ukraine, both the good news and since no administration is perfect, not even the Biden administration. What's the bad news? Well, first, Aaron, I would say that within that first week, when Russia came in with such massive force, hoping to overwhelm Ukraine and particularly overwhelm the government and overwhelm Kyiv, the fact that Ukraine is standing and that it has, yes, it's lost 20% of its territory in the in the east off of its international borders, but the fact that the, the rest of the country... Uh, is is still relatively normal is nothing short of miraculous and really is a, a testament to the Ukrainians. Um, I would say that you know we still though have a Russian occupation of Ukraine that is not sustainable or survivable for Ukraine. It's not like it was when the war froze in 2016. And yes, they had lost 7%, but they could manage, etc. Now you have a situation where even if the war froze today, uh, Putin will be back after he, you know, rests and refits, and then he's just going to return. So that's why the Ukrainians feel that they have to keep fighting, in addition to the fact that the Russians are continuing to fight. And that's why they have to get to... Um, a map that is more sustainable for them. So, so that's that's essentially where we are as we head into the spring. You, you see the Russians grinding on in the in the east, uh, deploying military tactics that we haven't seen since World War One, throwing you know nineteen year olds and convicts over trenches and allowing them to to be mowed down so that they can see where the weaknesses are in the lines and just leaving the bodies where they fall. Some 200,000 Russian KIA MIA because they don't care about human life. So, you know, we have a, a still bloody, grinding, brutal war, and we have Putin still exacting this tactic that he began in December of not only fighting on the battlefield, but launching missiles and drone attacks at civilian infrastructure, energy, water, heating, uh, hospitals, schools. 
Um, so it's still extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, looking back, uh, it's a hard question. Um, anything that you could you would say in, in terms of messaging tactics, managing the allies that you might have considered altering? Well, first, what went well? I think that we and the Ukrainians were able to use that three months from when we first found the intelligence to when he actually struck to make the case to allies that if he did go in, we needed the toughest possible sanctions. We needed more security support for Ukraine. We needed to isolate Russia internationally, and we needed to strengthen NATO. So we had that planning period, and then we were able to execute, um, as you said, begin bring that um, allied coalition together. So, you know, we had, we ended up with Putin thought he would, you know, rip the alliance apart. He thought he would rip Ukraine apart. And we have a more united Ukraine. We have a more united NATO. And we have a 50-plus coalition. So that's what has gone well. And Russia is paying a very, very high price, uh, not just in human life, not just in losing almost half of its military arsenal in, in a number of categories, but also in being an international pariah, losing a whole generation of, of technology and interface um, with with the world, uh, I think the 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 policy change that we made this time, as compared to fourteen fifteen, where we declassified intelligence as quickly as we could, made it made a difference, including with the Ukrainians. What is what has been difficult, though, is just the sheer mass of Uh, firepower, as I said, in some categories, more than half of the military of 140 million country, you know, people country to bear on little Ukraine. Uh, That's been one piece of it. But also the level of brutality and viciousness to which Putin was, is willing um, to go. So, you know, the fact that you have these mass graves, the fact that you have the filtration, you know, of of Ukrainians, including children back to Russia, into camps, etc. Uh, the fact that he will fire his long range missiles at will into heating plants in the middle of the winter. I think it's something that we we haven't seen um, in a very, very long time, and certainly not since World War Two. So being ready, anticipating that level of brutality has has been difficult. You know, had we been able to think ahead with the Ukrainians that he would actually go after heating plants, we could have done more to get more support in earlier. Um, Had we, you know, appreciated that he was going to empty his prisons of convicts, you know, that might have uh, been a factor in in planning how the Ukrainians... uh, managed through this winter on the battlefield as well. Right. I mean, it, it suggests a level of uh, brutality uh, and an absence of limitations in terms of what Putin's ultimate goals are and a willingness to continue to continue to continue. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Uh, let's go to sanctions just for a minute. You know, sanctions, um, not that I, I think anyone believed they would, but they really have not uh, stop Putin from waging war or diminished his determination or presumably his capacity to do so. They battered the Russian economy. 
even though I saw an IMF forecast that the Russian economy would actually grow by 0.3% in 2023. Russia's the world's, what, ninth or 10th largest economy? I think no one believed that sanctions would demolish the Russian economy or prompt regime change. The history of sanctions suggests that's almost never the case. How would you evaluate then the purpose of sanctions? And, and in your judgment, are they working as effectively and as efficiently uh, as possible? Aaron, I would say that sanctions are never a fast tool. They haven't been in any application. What I would say is that it is absolutely essential that we do everything we can to dry up both the revenue and the material that goes into Putin's war machine, given what we see him using it for. And so that goes to all the categories of sanctions, right? Um, banking sanctions, the de-swifting of, um, you know, taking out of the international clearing system, de-swifting of all of his major banks, which had never been done before with the exception of the Iran and North Korea cases. And it was very difficult, particularly for our European partners, whose exports and imports were much more intermixed with Russia's than, than ours were. The fact that we have so dried up his technology supply chain that he's now resorting to importing um, laptops and refrigerators and washing machines at massive scale through countries like Turkey and even some of our own countries so that he can cannibalize them for the chips that he needs for his weapons. The fact that the oil price cap um, that we put on revenue for him has driven the market price down for Russian oil to such a level that they're making you know, 20% of what they used to make on, on every barrel of oil in profit. You know, these are things that are having effect now, but they're going to have even longer effect over time. And frankly, for those of us, um, you know, who grew up hoping for a better Russia and have empathy for the Russian people as Putin makes these evil and brutal choices, He's also ensured that a whole generation of, of Russians' future will be greatly constrained because there's been no investment in their education, in their infrastructure, in their technology, in their advancement. All of it's going to his imperial war and his perception of glory. So that's sad, too. Um, sanctions can be effective, uh, although I think not transformative. Um, assuming you had enough participants in a sanctioned regime. And I, I noticed that one of the characteristics of this particular conflict is the amount of hedging that's going on. I think two-thirds of the world's population now live in countries that have not signed on uh, full bore for sanctions or at all. And someone reminded me that of the 10 most populated countries in the world, only one, the United States, has fully ascribed to the sanctions package. How do you explain uh, the hedging and the fence sitting from Israel to India, from Mexico to Brazil, especially given the blatant nature of Russia's ag aggression? Is it simply the fact that nations, no surprise here, 
follow their, their own interests and their interests don't coincide with our efforts? What is it? And do you, you expect over time that the hedging will continue, get worse or come around? Well, I would start by saying that a lot of the countries that are deeply ambivalent or deep, deeply conflicted about how to react to this war have long historic relationships first and dependencies, first on the Soviet Union and then on Russia. Let's take India. Their entire military, starting in the 60s, was built by the Soviets and then the Russians. So when you say to an, to an Indian, you know, don't do any more arms trading, they say, well, what am I supposed to do? And so, but, you know, I think what's beginning to change here is that countries that place their bets with Russia have understood, particularly on the security side, A, that Russian weapons stink, and B, that they can barely resupply themselves, let alone be able to be good partners, which provides an opening for us to uh, offer an alternative, which are, is what we're starting to do with countries like, like India, et cetera. Uh, and then when you think about the oil dependencies, uh, these same countries, whether it is, um, you know, South Africa or India, yes, they're still importing Russian oil. But if we put a price cap at 60, they're demanding that they only pay 40. And so Russia's only getting, you know, 15 per barrel. So they are beginning to understand, even if they don't um sign on to sanctions publicly that there are benefits for them and they're quietly reaping those benefits. So that's, you know, sort of work that's going to have to continue to happen over the months and years ahead. But I think we have a real opportunity here um, to quietly work with these countries to give them a better option. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. How frustrating, though, is it for you with countries that are very closely aligned with the United States and enjoy very close intelligence, uh, cooperation, and security assistance? I'm thinking, of course, of one country in particular, Israel, but there are others, the the UAE uh, as well, and not to mention Saudi Arabia. How do you deal with with countries like that that are, uh, well, some would argue they are frenemies in the case of Saudi Arabia, but how do you deal with close American allies who, in the case of Israel, share our values, uh, but who seem reluctant to come on board? I think in the case of the, the Gulf countries, you know, a lot of this goes to what we just talked about. So the Saudi relationship with Russia in, in OPEC plus, et cetera, um, you know, to 
continue to demonstrate that um, betting with Vladimir Putin uh, offers more risk than than reward, and we're doing that quietly. Uh, there are also uh, the same points to be made vis-a-vis -vis Xi Jinping's China, right? But that's a long conversation. Um, with regard to Israel, um, they continue to believe that they have special wasta with Putin, and our point is go ahead and use it and get this awful, brutal war stopped. And nobody knows better than the Israelis uh, what happens when war crimes go unanswered. So we will continue to have that conversation. Right. I'm sure Prime Minister Netanyahu would like nothing better than to become a mediator to um, facilitate or broker an end to uh, Russia's brutal uh, invasion of Ukraine. If Bibi Netanyahu can get Putin out of Ukraine, I'm going to give him the Nobel Prize. Let me ask you a question uh, about European dependence. Have we been, to some degree, victims of our own success? I mean, Biden has led and led very ably. But that leadership has demonstrated that without American, without the centrality of American leadership, uh, we would have been in a very different place a year after this war started. Um, have the Europeans missed an opportunity because of the fact that they can rely heavily on the United States? I'm thinking also post-war, where the creation of an industrial base, security system, economic reconstruction, a lot of that is going to have to be lifted by the Europeans, not by the United States. And I wonder uh, how you look at the European role now. Well, I would say, going back to your history question from the very beginning, I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, the U.S. has been the organizer of the democracies for almost 100 years, if not more, right? Going back to coming in, making the decision to come into World War I, World War II, the post-Cold War order. I think that's something that we should be enormously proud of uh, because we are not forcing our allies and partners. We're creating a community of common interests and people join because their interests and ours are aligned and their values and ours are aligned, which is a whole lot different than what's going on, what went on in the Warsaw Pact and what's going on in the relationship between Russia and China now. But I will say to you, I think we all uh, understand now that we took too deep a peace dividend um, when the Cold War ended, you know, that we all hoped that. Uh, Everybody would um, was moving in a democratic direction. We hoped that of China, that if we integrated them into the global system, that that would make them more open. We certainly, and I was part of this in the 90s and the odd years, hoped that if we, you know, turned the G7 into the G8, if we brought Russia uh, closer to NATO in the NATO-Russia Founding Act, that we would create a broader um, broader zone of peace and that every nation in between would get to live with sovereignty and dignity. Then comes along a guy like Vladimir Putin who wants to turn back history and recreate the Soviet Union. And you know, no matter what opportunity you give countries, if you have a leader who is uh, a dissatisfied actor in the system 
and is willing to take the kind of violent risks that Putin has taken rather than building his own country. Um, this is what you're going to get. And we, we should have hedged against that, I think, more than we did. But the notion of uh, French President Macron's notion of strategic autonomy, is that, I mean, how do you look at the European role going forward? Listen, I've been a fan, and I think Tony Blinken's been a fan, Joe Biden's been a fan, of as much European military strength as they're willing to pay for and build. Uh, and that way they can use it autonomously if they want to, if they're going on missions where we're not involved. But it becomes a benefit for all of us if we're on missions together, as we are now. So there's nothing to be feared for the United States from strategic autonomy per se, unless it's a fake autonomy or a autonomy on the cheap where they're not actually paying for the military muscle that we need. But what I want to say here is that Europe, and particularly the big powers of Europe, have stepped up in unprecedented ways uh, to support Ukraine's security needs, their e its economic needs. But the notion that Germany would ever agree to commit Mili lethal military equipment at all, let alone leopard tanks, which are going to be essential in the spring uh, to Ukraine. If you had woken me up on February 23rd, 2022, and said, is this going to happen? I would have said no way. So real kudos to our European partners, um, including the fact that they're taking some security risk themselves in all that they're providing for Ukraine. Right. I mean, I don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good, because then you don't get the perfect or the good. Um I want to focus now, if we can, on the issue of a of the long war. Um, not long after Russia's invasion, I think in March, you you um, appeared before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and you said that quote, "It was only a matter of time until Russia loses," though it's not clear exactly what losing meant. Um, I, I mean, I agree. I think I think in the end, Russia will suffer as a consequence of this. Time, though, which seems to be the ultimate arbiter of everything that's of value in life, is a critical variable. Is time an ally or is time an adversary? Well, Aaron, I would just remind that this conflict could end tomorrow if Putin stopped fighting and got out of Ukraine, right? This is his war, his aggression, his choice, his imperial ambition. This has nothing to do with anything that Ukraine did or was planning to do. So let's just um, lay the predicate there. Uh, neither side is ready to stop fighting. You know, as Tony Blinken likes to say, you know, if, if Russia stops fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. Yeah. So, um, but I do think that people should understand that when the fighting stops, however it stops, whether it stops because they've exhausted one side or the other is exhausted on the battlefield or they've achieved their, their aims, or we have a diplomatic solution, which would, would be wonderful, we must never trust as long as Vladimir Putin's in power or somebody like him that this is truly over because of what we saw in 14 and he's back again. So 
even if there is a just peace, there has to be a long-term plan and a building of the Ukrainian military of the future so that they can be deterring of any future appetite that Putin might have. So that means that they've got to have, and we've got to support them in building a long-term integrated air defense, a long-term uh, high-end border security force, an ability to patrol their seas, etc. So we are thinking obviously about the fight that they are in now and the fight that it will accelerate, we think, in the spring, but we're also helping them plan this long-term deterrent. Among other things, it's the only way to have them feel safe enough that this war can 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 end at some point. Right. I'm I'm just trying to drill down on the basic logic here, which seems sound with a with with a few asterisks. And that is the notion that we're trying to support Ukraine militarily, obviously, so it could defend itself and even t- and take back territory. But to put it in as favorable favorable a position as we possibly can. So if and when, if and when you have negotiations, it will be negotiating from an advantageous position. I mean, that strikes me as logical. I guess what uh, if there's a concern with that, I guess it's twofold. Number one, that assumes that by strengthening Ukraine's position, by gaining more territory, that Putin will have a greater incentive uh, to negotiate. So the more success Ukraine has, the more incentive Putin will have to negotiate. It could, however, work in an opposite fashion. The more success Ukraine has, it could serve as a disincentive for Putin to negotiate or even to escalate. And I'm not suggesting there's a better alternative here, Doria. Uh, I mean, it's more than a question of logic. There may not be. But if our view is that we, and, and we're prepared to support Ukraine, and they're prepared to wage war as long as they possibly can, to regain as much territory as they possibly can, is that the logic, basically, of our position? So, if Ukrainians came to if the Ukrainians came to us and said, uh, three months from now, we've turned back the Russian counter uh, offensive, we've launched our own counter offensive, we're now in a position to move forward and to threaten Russia's position, either the land bridge or in Crimea itself. What what would our assessment be? about the wisdom and efficacy of that approach. I mean, is escalation, is escalation at any point a, a serious concern of ours? Escalation's been a concern all the way through this on Putin's side. And we've seen Putin escalate again and again and again, you know, inviting Iran uh, to uh, sell and sell or give them drones that they are using to rain, you know, rain terror down on the Ukrainian people and take out their electricity grid. Um, to 
imprison whole towns of Ukrainians, you know, these kinds of things. So every time you think you are in a normal war or a war of the kind that we've seen before, it is Putin who escalates. And he's escalating in part, he's escalating because that's who he is and because he doesn't care about human life, not the life of his own citizens or obviously not the life of Ukrainians. He's not interested in proportionality, but he's also escalating because his military is not performing um, the way he was led to uh, believe it would. And so some of this is, is coming because he has increasingly blunt instruments. So we have to ensure that the Ukrainians can defend against that, which is how you see as he escalates, we have to help the Ukrainians withstand. Um, but we have been very careful, you know. Um, we did not, for example, at the beginning, give Patriot missiles, because Patriot air defenses, because we weren't sure that the Ukrainians would be able to train on them and use them and that they were the most flexible thing for the battlefield. But now we are giving patriots because we understand that no matter what happens on the battlefield, this guy can't be trusted not to come back. So, uh, again, I would say that you shouldn't expect Putin's not going to keep trying to escalate. The question is, is he going to be successful? Right. And, uh, again, we've pushed through every red line, every bluff every threat he's made, every bluster, and so have the Ukrainians, both in terms of what they're doing on the ground and the kind of weapon systems that we're providing them. Is there no red line? Maybe it's an intelligence assessment question. Is there no red line, if crossed, in your view, do you that you think might might cause a more drastic reaction on Putin's part. I'm thinking about Crimea, Toria, and whether or not, um, I mean, most of the Carnegie Russia analysts argue that that's, that is the red line for Putin, that we could see a severe reaction if Putin's hold of Ukraine is threatened. Now, maybe that's another, maybe it's another bluster. Another, I just wonder, as you process this, um, the more successes Ukraine has on the battlefield, the more they're going to want to continue. Well, first of all, uh, you know, you've seen they had a success in Kherson. Uh, they're fighting hard in Bakhmut, but they have significant chunks of territory uh, that they need to be a viable state before you even get to the question of Crimea. And that's what they're focused on now. Uh, our position remains that they are owed and do all of their territory within their international borders. We have never recognized Russia's hold on Crimea. And what's important to understand is after Putin sees Crimea, what did he do with it apart from, um, you know, mass human rights abuses against Tatars and others who were living in, in Crimea? He turned it into a massive military installation and a launching platform that he used for this war. So no matter what the Ukrainians decide about Crimea in terms of where they choose to fight, et cetera, 
Ukraine is not going to be safe unless Crimea is at a minimum, at a minimum, demilitarized. And that has to be, that is, you know, part of ensuring that there is a sustainable deterrent. So I'm not going to prejudge what, where the Ukrainians choose to fight or how they choose to deal with Crimea over the short term, medium term, or long term. We recognize Crimea as Ukraine. Uh, but what I will say is everybody talking about Crimea needs to understand what Putin used it for and continues to use it for. Believe me, I'm not trying to write a brief here or, or construct a logic chain in, in defense of Vladimir Putin. I am concerned about risk and escalation uh, and whether or not, I guess the question comes out whether our battlefield aims, I know our war aims and Ukraine's are coincident. I hear, I hear what you're saying. The outcome needs to be the return of well, well, protection of Ukraine, Ukrainian sovereignty and return of territory, including Crimea, are our battlefield aims coincident? Uh, I think in this next phase, in terms of what the Ukrainians want to do on the battlefield and what we are enabling them to plan to do, yes. Good. I mean, because I there was a piece in the New York Times uh mid-January, uh, Helene Cooper and Eric Schmidt. Again, when you quote unnamed administration officials, I realize it's, I've been, I, you know, this is, isn't my first rodeo, I, I understand that, who said that our reluctance to provide Ukraine with weapons to strike Crimea directly is softening. And the article goes on is that the logic, according to these officials, is only when Ukraine shows Russia it might lose Crimea. Will Putin get serious about negotiating? So I'm going to go back to the way I framed this before, which is that there is an, a drone base in Crimea where the drones that the Iranians have given yeah. Russia are being launched from. There are command and control sites in Crimea that are essential for uh, Russia's hold on all of the territory, including the land bridge. There are um, mass military installations in, on Crimea that Russia has turned into essential logistics and back office depots for this war. Those are legitimate targets. Ukraine is hitting them, and we are supporting that. Fair enough. We've almost come to the end um, of... Uh, of our of our session, um, and I guess I have a final question. And I again, Tori, I raise the issue of risk and escalation because matching means and ends uh, are important here. Um, ending this war is important, and avoiding escalation is is critically important. Um, I, I do that I, 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 keeping in mind that next month, March twentieth. Uh, that we'll be celebrating another anniversary, uh, 20 years after uh, what I consider to be an ill-fated and ill-conceived largest projection of American military force since Vietnam into Iraq. Two situations are hardly analogous. The one, keep, one question keeps 
occurring to me. And it's the it's the how will this end question. And and while I, I understand that not even Pythia, the Oracle of Delphi, reading the best of Godin trails, can answer that question. When our allies ask us, how will this end? What do we say? What do we say to them? Aaron, I think this goes back to first principles. It has to end with a strategic failure for Putin. It has to end with Putin not being able to, from a residual platform in Ukraine or from, you know, if the Ukrainians succeed in pushing him all the way off from Russia again, come roaring back in six months or in six years. It has to end with an autocrat with grand 18th century, 19th century imperial ambitions being told no, not only by the state he's invading, the little country he's invading, but by the whole civilized world. Because if we don't do that, every other autocrat on this planet is going to go looking to bite off pieces of countries and destabilize the order that has largely kept us safe and prosperous for decades and decades. So that's what Ukraine is about. It's obviously about Ukraine, but it's about the larger world order, the world that the U.S. has led and kept safe for all of these years. It's about the U.N. charter we all signed, sovereignty of states, no invading anybody by force, right? It's about the values that we hold dear. So that's what this is about. So how does it end? It ends with a safe, viable Ukraine. It ends with a Putin who is limping back off the battlefield. Um, I hope it ends eventually with a Russian citizenry who also says that was a bad deal for us and we want a better future. Um, but it must end with uh, a strategic defeat for Putin or everybody else is going to come looking for what he has and it's going to be a far less safe world, a far more dangerous world for us. Uh, Tori Newland, there's so much more to discuss. I wish we had more time, um, but I want to thank you uh, for coming on and maybe hopefully next year at this time, um, we will not be talking about Russia in Ukraine and maybe you'll come back then and we can talk about how it actually all did end. I hope, I truly hope so. I hope so too, Aaron. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.